is they tend to not like risk at all with their investments and they're not really willing to even research beyond that. There are a lot of GIC savers. They might like to save in uh, all their money inside whole life. Um, they almost always have locked in mortgages. So if you're somebody with a locked in mortgage and you say, I will never look at variable rate mortgages, um, there's a good chance chance that you have a lot of this this bunker mentality. A lot of physicians tend to be, not just physicians, but I would say any any highly educated, extremely smart people have a have a tendency to lean towards the masquerader. Everybody has a different view of money and there, there's, believe it or not, Boo, there's seven different potential money mindsets. Hey everyone, today we're going to be talking about how we think about money. Uh, we've all been brought up differently. We have different cultures and different understanding of you know, finance and money and profession and savings and retirement. We all have different views of that, but I think all that stems from our understanding of money. And to be honest, our understanding of money comes from how we were brought up and from our culture and also from the uh, nurturing of our parents. And so today what we're going to do is talk about these money mindsets Notice that these money mindsets are sort of separated one from another, but I hope that the audience will realize that we're probably a mix of one or two or even three types of money mindset. They're definitely a continuum or even a mix of them. So I hope that you guys uh, understand this podcast and see where you fall within this spectrum. How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Okay, hello back everyone to the How Is My Financial Health Doc podcast, and I am your host, Vuka Tran. Today, we're going to talk about money, but not in the way that we think we're going to talk about money. We're going to reflect on how we think about money. So it's sort of like um, uh, metacognition about money. So how do I think about how I think about money? How do I view my views about money? How about that? Does that make you confused a little bit? I hope so, because that's what we're going to deal with today. We're going to talk about today. And to do that, I have my good friend again, uh, Nick Giovanetti. You've met Nick before. We've done the podcast on debt management and good debt and bad debt and how to build wealth with debt. And uh, as promised, we are going to talk about money mindset. So welcome back to the show, Nick. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. I I know it's I know it's late and uh but we we have a lot to talk about and we're going to talk about 
how we think about money because I think it's important. How we think about money is how we're going to manage money. So in our last episode, you talked a little bit about money mindset. So just give us a little a snippet of what you meant by that, and then we'll dive into it later. For sure. Yeah. So the, you know, the way people think about money is it's interesting because everybody has a different view of money and there there's, believe it or not, boo, there's seven different potential money mindsets that, that one could have. We do have uh, a quiz in, in our practice to actually help identify which potential money mindset you may or may not be. Um, and that actually helps guide us and, and helps helps us to coach more so the behavioral the behavioral aspects to how you you handle money and deal with money. So when we think of cash flow planning, we more so think of behavioral cash flow planning, not not so much budgeting because math is math is math and math is easy enough to to calculate, but it's how are we going to behave as individuals towards, our cash flow and our budgeting. Okay, so interesting. What you're saying to me is if I have a certain mindset, that's how I view money. And that's obviously going to affect and impact how um, I, ma- I manage my budget and uh, whether I'm going to have a cash flow positive at the end of the month or cash flow negative at the end of the month. But it also affects, obviously, if I have no cash flow, I have no savings. So it obviously will affect my savings and eventually my net worth and retirement uh, income. This money mindset you're talking about really is very influential in our financial success in the future. That's what I'm understanding from what you just said there. Absolutely. It, it's it's not so much the math behind what we're doing, the dollars and cents that come into the bank account, but it's how we're going to behave, react and and live through life with our spending and our saving behavior that is going to impact us the most right there's not always a secret bullet to to finance how am i going to you know become wealthy i'm going to watch a bunch of youtubes and and podcasts it's not always necessarily that but a lot of it has to do with just our behavioral uh, money management skills or our behavioral planning often often you know canadians don't actually know how much they're spending, right? And they do feel uh, a bit of a fear in telling you uh, exactly how much they think they're spending because a lot of people don't want to feel judged, you know? So so a lot of people don't uh, seek out this type of guidance or, or advice as well. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. For one, I don't do a budget. I know I just sat down on a podcast, on a financial podcast. I shouldn't have, but no, I don't budget. I, I do a big B budget. I don't, sorry, I do a small B budget. I don't do a big B budget. So you'll tell me what money mindset I'm I'm in. What you're, what you're saying is, you know, this is, this is very much behavioral. The same way investment and investing is uh, influenced by behavior. In the money mindset is how we view money and how we manage money and how we deal with money. So Let's let's jump right into it. You mentioned that there are seven types. Let's name them. Let's give them a names first. And then we'll kind of jump into each of them and try to define what they really mean. And then finally, what we'll talk about it, how does it impact each individual? 
and then what can we do about it? So let's let's start with naming them first. Absolutely, yeah. So there's seven. So we'll we'll stretch this out so it's not too much of a of a rush job, and and we'll try and slowly identify them as you said. So the the number one is the dreamer. So there we've got uh, the dreamer is is often taught or learned that anything's possible, right? That's one kind of main identifier of the dreamer. And they're likely an entrepreneur, right? Another money mindset is the justifier. So the justifier is interesting because the justifier is kind of like the king and queen of rationalizing their spending. So as a justifier, you're always coming up with reasons for buying just about anything. They're, they're the justifier. Then we've got another one here it's referred to as the brick wall. So the brick wall, they like to make decisions based on logic and reasoning. And they usually carefully weigh their options and review details just about at every turn, right? So they they feel like they they do not make decisions emotionally. That's the, that's the brick wall. Then we have the poly or the Pollyanna. This is a really interesting one because they're somebody that they're just blissfully unaware when it comes to their finances. And, and that's just fine with them, right? They they have a, a lovely and pleasant uh, disposition and everyone knows that they they think the world of you. And um, you know, you're you're likely to be an overspender when you're a, when you're a Pollyanna. They're the out of sight, out of mind uh, personality. Then we have the masquerader. The masquerader is an interesting one because these people are generally extremely smart individuals, usually extremely well-educated. They might even have background in finance. They're people that they like. They, they likely worked very hard in school and they built a great career. And in return, they're expecting to not have to worry about money. That, that would be the masquerader. But they're also one that um, a lot of people make assumptions that they're doing better than they are, right? And they and they want the world to think they're doing they're doing better than they are. And they like to live a lush lifestyle. Then we have the undercover agent. This one's super interesting because every time I've ever come across an undercover agent, I always think, man, CSIS or the CIA should have scooped you up. Because just the way that they think about things, they're very stealthy, very stealth-like with their finances. They're most likely to be the person that's going to hide money. They're going to have their little savings or spending uh, dollars kind of chuck, chucked away or, or tucked away. Uh, they're very inconspic inconspicuous as a, as a money mindset. Another one here we have is called the bunker. And this is our, this is our seventh one. So... The bunker, their greatest fear is to lose everything and having to worry about money. So these are the people that they're always ready to shelter the storm. They, they build a rock solid foundation. Um, they're very, very careful with money. And, you know, they're the people that are going to, uh, they're going to have their bread bags when they go to the grocery store because they don't want to pay the, the five cents or whatever it is for plastic or paper bags. Everything's thought out uh, very frivolously. That that would be the bunker.
Okay, good. So we have seven descriptions of seven types of money mindset. And you've given us a little bit of a scoop on each of them. So why don't we dive a little bit deeper uh, into each of them? And let's start with the dreamer. So you mentioned the dreamer is a guy who thinks they can do it all. Sky is the limit. They they dream. So let's dive a little bit deeper in, into that person or that personality. Um, how do they see money and how do they manage money? Yeah, that's a great question. So the dreamer, uh, they typically have spending habits that are well, let me let me pull it back actually let, let me talk about saving they they definitely have a hard time saving uh it's not that they don't believe in saving but they just haven't gotten around to putting much money away they're like i said earlier they're usually entrepreneurs they're usually risk takers and they they're usually risky with their careers as well as investors if they are investors and they are saving they tend to like the books like think and grow rich um, those Tony Robin books, Money Master the Game. They're always looking for the rental properties or the 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 stocks that uh, they read in a in a blog somewhere, and and they're trying to they're trying to make big gains like a like an entrepreneur is trying to make with with whatever their ideas are. Usually, they their imagination is boosting them. Right. So they they've got an appetite for risk and they're willing to take it. So would you say that they are maybe sometimes over optimistic? They can they can be. Yeah, they're, they're like I mean friends of theirs would probably categorize them as a free spirit. Yeah. You know, which which has its merits. They're they're usually impatient with success and Got that it. can lead to issues when it's coming when it comes to building wealth and thinking long range, right? A lot of wealth creation is thought long range. So you mentioned uh, there could be some challenges and some uh, drawbacks of this type of mindset. So give me a few examples. What type of trouble can these people get into? Oh, man. So, I mean, generally, they have a great idea of today and being very well off for tomorrow. And they they believe that they're going to succeed, but they're looking generally for, for big wins and fast wins. They, they mm. just have a hard time committing to a strategy or they they might be a little flashy in the pan where they they they'll catch wind of an opportunity that might be coming up and they'll blow up something that they're already doing quite well at but in their mind they've told themselves well I could probably do better if I was over there so so they end up it's almost like the the breaking of compounding Right. We once we have compounding started, we want to keep that compounding going. Uh, it's the the similar idea of a penny doubling a day for thirty days turns into more than five million dollars. So they never really get to the five million dollars. They've broken compounding of that penny on day fifteen, where they've got about one hundred and sixty bucks. Right. So a lot of times their their issue is that they're they're looking too quickly for the big win. If I'm that type of personality. What are the things I can do to mitigate that, change that, or keep myself more in check? What what would what would someone recommend? Well, a lot of it is is systems. Be aware of how you think. If you're somebody that knows that you chase shiny lights, 
maybe you need to put in some systems in your financial life that are going to prevent you or at least make it difficult for you to chase the shiny light, right? Look for vehicles and saving strategies that are going to make it a little bit more of a long range mindset for what you're trying to do, but still give yourself enough liquidity so that you don't feel like you're in a box or that you're in a prison. I always, I, I would always say to, to somebody who's a dreamer is you need to have your fun money, your entrepreneur money, your play money, because you need to get those wins, those quick wins for today so that you're satisfied with that and you're not going to blow up the nest egg. Good advice. I like that. Like that. So a little bit of your play money so that you can dream, <laughs> but make sure that you have another another stash that is a safety net, right? The justifier. Let's talk a little bit about the justifier. You, you mentioned this is someone that is very analytical, that will have a rationale for every single spending or non-spending. Let's dive a little bit deep into that and, and what type of views they have about money and how they manage money. Yeah, so the justifier, they can they tend to have a void somewhere in their life. And they believe that nice lifestyle will eventually make them feel better. It's not that they have a bad life or any major problems, but they have this level of this level of anxiety that they, for whatever reason, it, it makes them feel in control to buy things. So they want to they want to rationalize and justify to the utmost degree as to why they're buying something so that they have that control mechanism, right? The justifier. They're a group that um, they get that warm feeling when they buy things, but it's usually short-lived. And then they have to start justifying it with their actions, right? So I I maybe bought something that I justified and I rationalized and I thought all about it and I researched the all the way up to the wazoo about you know why I bought this, but then the thrill and the excitement of purchasing it wore off quite quickly. So now they're going to sit around and think of reasons to use whatever it was they bought. I, I'm trying to think of it on the spot. Maybe it's a car or maybe it's a, I don't know, some a tool of some kind, a very expensive chainsaw or something. And they'll just look for reasons to use it, even though they never really needed the chainsaw. That might be the, the, the justifier. So they're the sort of person that would spend, spend money they didn't really have on, say, a minivan instead of a car in their price range or on a, on a souped up SUV instead of a car on their price range and they have one kid, right? That That's an example of a justifier. I'll add this too, Vu. They usually encourage people around them to overspend as well mm -hmm. so that they don't feel as bad about them overspending or their spending habits. Right. So everything has to be quote unquote in air quotes logical, right? And so if if other people is doing the same, then it obviously supports what they're doing, which log which is logical to them. Vu is a justifier, man. He's spending way much more than he should or can. What are the, the things that you're gonna ask me to do or help me want either recognize it or change some of my behavior? 
what are the, some of the tools you'll you'll suggest to me? Yeah, so I would say that like a justifier, they can be good savers, right? So they understand the importance of having emergency funds. They understand the importance of having automatic automated savings. They may even save monthly, right? So the biggest risk to a justifier with, with their savings is that they'll usually drain their savings for uh, air quotes, good reason. When we're working with justifiers, a lot of times we want to, again, it comes down to with anything behavioral, it takes time to, to change the mindset or put up funny little roadblocks so that they, they tend to have to go an extra mile to do the things that you know that they're going to lean towards or tend to do. So if a justifier is typically someone that'll save diligently, but then blow the wad on something just because they rationalized it over the Christmas break, we want to put in little roadblocks like, hey, before you can do anything like that, I want you to write me a three article or a three page uh, report or a one page report or, or even just a paragraph, write it to me and email it to me as to what you're thinking and why. So maybe that little bit of a step of you having to now justify your rationale to somebody external to you, hopefully that's your financial planner or your most trusted advisor, that extra step, you might start to talk yourself now out of the, the purchase that you're trying to make. Good tool. Good tool. Now, I think instead of uh, writing to your financial planner, I think you should write to your spouse first, right? <laughs> make sure Make sure your spouse is okay with it. Otherwise, it will be a really difficult conversation at home. Yeah, that's good a good tool. one. Good tool. Okay. the brick. And, and I'll just add yeah. this too with the justifier because they do tend to be people that talk their friends or family into spending a lot of money is is I would I would do your very best to, to recognize that about yourself yeah. and to try and not talk other people into how they're spending their money. Because there is a lot of people out there that you might not realize have incredible trust and value in what you say, right? And sometimes it's just you trying to justify how you want to spend your money. Right. Oh, for sure. I do that all the time, right? If, uh, if I want to buy a Mustang or I want to drive a Mustang, you know, I tell my wife how cool she would look in my Mustang. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the brick wall. Let's let's drive into that. The brick wall. Remind us again what it is and how do these people see and manage money? So you'll notice a lot of these mindsets are very close to one another, and I'm really trying to uber summarize them. Um, so if anybody's interested, we can uh, hand out, we've got a, a booklet and a quiz on it so you can dive deeper into it for yourself. But the brick wall is, this is somebody who's really based on logic and reasoning. They carefully weigh uh, the options at every turn. So they are uh, an interesting bunch because they don't believe in letting people waste their time. They don't really believe in wasting other people's time either. They're, they're kind of the, I'm not, I'm not fooling around. I'm straight to the point, shoot from the hip uh, type of a, type of a money mindset. When they're a spender, they feel very in control. Like they, they don't mess around with their spending. They, they don't like talking to salespeople generally. They might even be tempted to squirrel away a little bit of money for, for rainy days. I would say often a financial challenge for a brick wall is that the degree at which they scrutinize investment choices 
and the way the way in which they become almost a, a sophisticated form of procrastination, <laughs> to put it in a in a unique way. Opportunities will pass the brick wall by because they get lost in doing their own research and thinking that people are just trying to sell them. I like that word, sophisticated procrastinator. I I really really like that term. So the brick waller is can often feel like they are paralyzed by the analysis that they're doing or by the amount of sheer analysis and research that they're doing. So there's some of analysis paralysis here in the brick waller, I understand. Absolutely. Analysis paralysis is is very evident and strong with this type of mindset. They're very, very cautious with big purchases. They ask a lot of questions. They'll do a lot of research. So, I mean, for for the audience listening, they may say, well, Vu, that's a good thing, right? I don't want to be splurging my money on frivolous stuff. I, I definitely do not want to be the dreamer, and I definitely don't want to be the justifier. I feel justified to be the brick waller. But what's the downside then? What's the downside of the brick waller, or at least that type of mentality? So the downside to the brick waller is beyond the fact that they tend to miss a lot of good opportunity because they they over-research, that they often are very unlikely to make financial changes, even if they know it's for their own good. They're not often to, willing or wanting to seek out professional advice. Oh, got it. I mean, it makes sense. Um, they've done the research. They know it all. The issue with it is we're in the information age and we're in the misinformation age. So how do you distinguish when you're when you're a brick wall and you're doing all your research? A lot of times you end up you end up circling yeah. because you think you're on the path of something. You're like, okay, I now believe in this, but then you just read 15 other things now that that contradict the way you were going, and now you're believing over this other way, and you end up just in a tornado storm of confusion. Right, and you you will start to identify some sources that you believe credible. So you might hone in on a certain particular journal. Maybe it's uh, the Financial Post you find to be the most credible, or maybe it's uh, investment executive you find to be the most credible. Maybe it's the Motley Fool, right? That blog online. But the difficult thing is, is that you're now putting a lot and all in most cases of your information into one particular one particular uh, journalist or journalistic um, platform where they all have misinformation at times and it can really steer you down the wrong path. Not to say something too uh, bluntly, but sometimes you can be very stubborn and pigheaded as a, as a brick wall. I think that's what a brick wall means. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, many, you good. know what's interesting, Vu, uh, is many of your friends tend to respect you. Because they think that you're you're very intelligent and determined, and so that's a, that's an interesting ego boost that mm -hmm. the brick wall gets. Yeah, I mean, I I see that all the time, right? Um, colleagues of mine who've who probably read uh, lots. Uh, I'm I'm talking about you know from a medical standpoint, they've read lots. Uh, they understand arguments, counter arguments. This article, that arg that article. 
But at the end of the day, when it's time to make a decision, they have a hard time making a decision because they're so confused by all the data, although they know all the data. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, so uh, Pollyanna, I like that word, Pollyanna. What does it refer to, and and uh, why did it? Why did was it named Pollyanna? You know, I don't know. Uh, I like it too, though. It's uh, I like the nickname the Polly, but Pollyanna is good as well. So the this this was just the term uh, that was given to me when I did my my cash flow specialist designation and. It, it really just means like you're just you're blissfully unaware of what's going on around you. You know, you're you are um, you're somebody who tends to overspend because, you know, you're also the first one that will say, I'll cover lunch. You know, I'm out with a few friends. Hey, I got lunch, everyone. Or, hey, I got I got the round of drinks. You're you you really want to you really want to attend the good time. Right. It, and um Typically, if you're single, you'll find that uh, you can keep your bills paid, but you also make a, a conscious effort not to think about money. So it's not to say that a Pollyanna doesn't pay their bills or, or stay on top of things, but they really don't want to think about money and they never want money to be the reason why they don't do something. I'm understanding two two things here. One, the Pollyanna is... You know, I guess in in some way you can look at this as this person is very generous because this person is spending a lot of money and, and buying things for everyone and buying drinks and dinner. So this person is a generous person. But the other thing that you said is that they're blissfully unaware and they don't care. And I, I've, I have colleagues like that. I have colleagues like that. And I've spoken to people like that when I talk to them about you know, personal financial literacy and say, I don't want to hear about it. And I said, why? Well, because my husband handles it or my wife handles it or my advisor handles it. It's not at least someone handles it as long as it's not me, right? And so I don't know that if those people are particularly generous or not, but but those people definitely want nothing to do with finance. And I don't know, is it because it's too hard? Uh, they fear it because they don't understand it. Or because they just don't want to bother. So it's really hard for me to figure out why they really don't care. You know, it's funny because a Pollyanna, as an investor, they're very scary. And what I mean by that is if you were somebody who was eavesdropping on a Pollyanna that was meeting with their investment advisor or their banker or their financial planner, you would often hear them continuously say, I trust you, whatever you think, whatever you think's best for me. So they tend to brush off the whole entire conversation and they want to delegate all responsibility of the decision-making on their investments to the financial professional because they don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want it to take up brain space. They're very free when it comes to money. And that's why I say they're scary. Me being a certified financial planner, I, I don't want that. I want us to talk things out. I want you to really understand what it is you're you're doing and what your money is doing for you. So when somebody continually pushes that off, that that that's a scary investor. It's funny that you say that as a certified financial planner because I I would think 
that as an advisor, the more freedom you are given, the better it is for you, right? I don't, you know, Vu is a Pollyanna and he doesn't care about his money. So I have free reign to make decisions and, you know, and Vu would be okay with that. Wouldn't that make your job easier? It makes the job easier in the short term, but financial planners are long-term thinkers. And a lot of times Pollyanna is down the road. If something is going on in their life financially, they tend to play the card of, I didn't know you were going to do that, or I didn't know that you did it that way. So it's more of a risk and a liability when somebody completely wants to take their hands off the reins of knowing what is going on with their money. We need to at least touch base on things, have conversations around them. And I need to log into my notes continuously what we talked about. If you're just going to say, hey, go ahead and do it, that's fine. But down the road, you won't know what's going on. And that runs a, a risk for, for a financial planner. I get that. I get that. I mean, the this long-term relationship uh, will bring you 5, 10, 15, 20 years down in the future. And you don't want to be blamed for decisions that the other person didn't want to make. Exactly. I've been in situations where we've taken very small amounts of people's money, maybe 2 3 4% to put into something that is going to be secure, stable, going to be growing at, you know, right around 4% guaranteed for, for an extended period of time. And everything's all good. Everything is great. But then this person being so free spirited, their strategy and their plan may completely change in five years. Now, all of a sudden, they're, they decide that they want to get into the franchise business. And they, they want to open up a franchise and they need to get their hands on $200,000 really quickly. But they've completely erased from their mind that five years ago, they got into a strategy that they wanted safe, secure, and long-term, even though it's a relatively small piece of their capital, they're now upset because they feel like they didn't know that it was locked up, right? So the Pollyanna right. is very free. Their financial plan changes weekly in some cases. They might decide that they want to disappear and go to Europe for five months, but they don't know how they're going to pay for it because they wish that the world had no money and they could just, <laughs> everyone could do whatever they wanted to do at any given time. I wish I and was a Pollyanna. A... <laughs> sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pollyanna. I've even seen them shudder at the thought of their children learning about money and money lessons. Really? Yeah. They they just love life so much. They think that that money is going to pollute the pollute the world. They don't hate money though. I would say it's a love hate because as long as money's there and they can spend it and that balance never goes to zero, they love it because it's a, it's their adventure and their memories. But they also hate that they need to make sure that they're responsible with it and make sure it's always there. So how do you help them uh, if you see a Pollyanna? Vu is a Pollyanna. How do you help Vu? What are the different tools that, that can help Vu uh, mitigate that type of mindset? The Pollyanna is a very difficult one. That's why I say they're scary sometimes when you're working with them. But as an, as an advice for any financial planners out there or anybody who is a Pollyanna, you really want to stay away from something that is going to uh, reduce the likelihood of liquidity of your money or is going to make you feel like you're locked, locked into something, regardless of how small it is. 
you want to make sure that you have that freedom because it will result in disappointment and it will result in potential conflict if you have sort of released all reins to someone else who has a maybe a great background in financial plan. They understand long-term thinking. They understand future retirement and what have you and inflation and, and longevity risk. But I would say that you need to have regular conversation as much as you don't want to. I would say you're the type of person that should touch base with their advisor every quarter or semi-annually, whereas a lot of people recommend once a year annually. I would say you're somebody that should touch base with your advisor a lot more often because you are changing constantly. But that's that's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because the Pollyanna is the person who didn't even want to take rein, didn't even want to take controls of their steering wheel. They they were so free. They they do whatever you want, dear CFP advisor. But now you're asking them to touch base twice a year. It's quite counterintuitive for them. I would say that this is like this this is the person that has a salt appetite and they keep buying chips. You gotta start buying more sweets and then maybe you'll eat less of them. Right. That's the idea here. So because you want so badly not to deal with money, even if it's only a pulse check, you want to pulse check your financial team frequently because your mind and the way you're looking at the world is changing so frequently that just by touching base with them, they'll have an idea of what you're thinking. You don't need to meet with them and book a meeting to do a full blown review. But I, I think having a touch point as a Pollyanna, a little pulse check every three to six months, it will keep the people in your life who are responsible and helping you with your wealth, stay on top of where they think you're going. If they start hearing you talking all the time about going to Tur Turks and Caicos, and you're sitting there binge watching YouTube on Turks and Caicos for three months, they're going to probably have a pretty good idea that you're going to come to them very soon in the future talking about how you're going to drop 20, 25 grand on a Turks and Caicos trip. So that's why I mean by pulse checks. It, it, it may it may drive the Pollyanna a bit crazy, probably irritate and frustrate them, but I think that's what they need to, to hear and do. And remember, behavior can be changed. And I think that by slowly working at your behavioral tendencies to try and evolve and adapt the areas that are potential risks to your mindset will slowly fade and diminish slightly over time usually only in in periods of stress do people reserve or do people go back to how they are naturally so if you can keep that life in a stress-free environment at least financially, there, there's a likelihood that we can keep the behavior tamed. I think that's that's the idea, right? The idea is recognizing what money, what money mindset I belong to and how to make those small corrections over time so that I'm not one extreme or the other extreme, right? That's the idea. So let's go to the fifth uh, money mindset, the masquerader. And I think you and I, prior to jumping onto the podcast, says we, we you've, you said that this is the money mindset of physicians. 
Uh, explain, explain why, what you meant by that. Well, a lot of, uh, a lot of physicians tend to be not just physicians, but I would say any, any highly educated, extremely smart people have a, have a tendency to lean towards the masquerader unless they so abruptly fall into one of the other categories, but it's because they generally are extremely hardworking in school and they built great careers and they just expect not to worry about money. That's, that's the idea of the masquerader. Now they're probably the people who from the outside, they look perfect. They, they got, you know, two kids and a white picket fence. They drive the right car. They live in the right neighborhood, rub shoulders with the right people. You know, they're friends with who some might say, well, those are the friends you want to have. And a lot of people make assumptions about the masquerader. But the difference between what is being shown and what's happening behind the scenes is where the masquerader run, runs into problems. Because the masqueraders, are as a spender, they love high-end. They love brand names. They love quality products. They like the, the big bill restaurants. Um, they like to go to charity auctions. You know, the, the way that a masquerader gets day-to-day -day is generally from cash flow. So when they're spending money, they're usually looking at what is my cash flow and can my cash flow support this to get me to the next paycheck, right? So the, so the masqueraders are generally on the edge. They're on the edge of the break. You'll probably notice a masquerader as somebody who tends to do a lot of overtime because they're very cash flow focused, right? When's that, what's that next paycheck dollar going to be? Because I just spent my whole last paycheck trying to, trying to live a vivid life. I think, I think you described me to a T at least, uh, that was me eight years ago. Uh, but kidding aside, I think you describe a lot of physicians. You're right. I mean, by the way you described it, right. Um, we work hard, uh, we, we study hard, uh, but then, you know, someone that, uh, something that my colleague told me, we work hard, but we also party hard, right. <laughs> Um, and so I guess what he meant was, you know, because we make a good income, then we feel that it's justified for us to spend that income. Unfortunately, it becomes a vicious cycle and a, a rat race where you're constantly uh, running after that next paycheck. So well, and I'll, I'll describe it as a as an investor, a masquerader, they, they typically prefer hard assets. So they like hard assets, like they like buildings, real estate, things that people can see, right? Things with big letters. If you could have Vukiat Tran on a 50-story building downtown. Oh, that would know, be that, nice. That See? Yeah. That would be nice. And, and the, the problem is, is that you can have, a lot of these masqueraders can have a very healthy portfolio, but it can be heavily outweighed by their debt load. For sure. Um, I, I absolutely agree with you. I once went to my banker who is a friend of mine and I, I needed, I needed some advice. And uh, my banker says to me that he had a client who was making, I, I, I won't tell you what specialty that is, but it's one of those very high earning specialties. He was making 1.2 million per year, but out of all his physician clients, that was the client has the most debt. 
and he was maxed out on all his line of credits. So absolutely, what you're saying to me actually does ring true. Well, and and sometimes there's a massive increased risk of if you lost your money in investments, if you experienced a short-term loss, they're likely to be turned off of that investment type altogether. And they just go headstrong into, say, real estate or, or business ideas. And they have great potential. A lot of masqueraders have incredibly great potential. If they would just stop taking out early returns or dipping into capital to, to fund their spending habits. So I'm a masquerader and I'm sitting in front of you and you recognize that. What are the different things you can teach me or tell me, so put some tools in my tool belt? What are those? Well, I'd say when I identify a masquerader, the, the, the greatest fear of a masquerader is judgment and they'll do whatever they can to not feel judged. They're usually really well-educated. They're usually brilliant individuals and, and they've, they're, they carefully crafted their exterior. So, you know, with a masquerader, you want to sort of play into that a little bit. They, they can be people that have a, a shell that's hard to crack, but I would say that because the masquerader has such high potential, if you can get them to sit down and see the value of where they can be, if they do things a different way, and in combination with spending, saving, and different behaviors, they they can they can do extremely well. I would say with a masquerader, you need to you need to build the picture because they like things people can see. So you have to actually paint the picture of this is what you are and where you're gonna be. Let's go to uh, mindset number six, which is the undercover agent. I also love that name. It's very James Bondy type of thing. So what what is a undercover agent? Yeah, they're the most likely of the mindsets I mentioned to to kind of hide money, hide their savings. They're 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 always preparing for for winter. The interesting thing is, is as a spender, they're very inconspicuous. They're often like a middle of the road lifestyle. They're not obvious. They don't typically have fancy cars or big homes. And they're most they're more likely to actually spend on experiences and um and uh, rather than tangible things. They're, because of that, the the undercover agent, it, there's actually differences between males and females if if they're if they're an undercover agent, but even when they're saving, they're secretive. They tend to be a little bit difficult to advise because you never really know what's going on. They're not as forthcoming. They're usually seeking advice from multiple individuals. They might actually have two or three financial planners that they're working with at the same time, usually just to see if they're getting the same advice from all of them. But even if they realize that they're not, they'll still continue to work with the same two or three uh, advisors. An undercover agent, they it's such an interesting one because even me, I'm I'm puzzled by them because I know so little about them. Their their mo is just secretive. They're very hesitant. They want to have a great life, and and because of that, they work hard and they they tend to to want to experience the their their money more than more than uh, just buying things with it. So what I understand from what you just said there is that these are people who do have the money, who do have the wealth but they don't show it and and what they're interested in is not 
the flashy, tangible stuff, but more the experiential, the journey, the 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 emotional side of of an asset or of a, of a of something that they purchase. But because they do that, they are willing to spend money on that. These are not people who are frugal or cheap. These are people who are still willing to spend money, if I understand well. They are. They're they're definitely willing. They're willing to spend money. Um, and they can be very mysterious about their spending. So a lot of their spending, you're right, it could be quite high, but you wouldn't know. You're dealing with a uh, undercover agent. How do you how do you deal with that? What are different tools? And and I'm, I mean I mean tools for you as a as a financial planner, but also tool for that individual. Uh, what are the different drawbacks of that type of mindset? Well, the the interesting thing is like if you're a single person and you're an undercover agent, you're spending and saving pa- patterns they impact nobody but yourself. But when you're in a committed relationship, keeping secrets can be really costly. And your partner could take that behavior as distrust in them and it could possibly put relationships in jeopardy, right? Cuz imagine if you found out that your spouse had 500,000 in a secret account at a bank you didn't know she banked with. What would you think? I have an extra $500,000. <laughs> but if I didn't know that, I wouldn't have it. You're right. Right? Some people it- would look at that as as uh, and I'm only speaking from experience of scenarios I've seen is some people have said, well, why would they be storing that kind of money? Like, is, is, are they planning to leave? Is there, did they not trust me with the money? Is, you know, there's some other reason, some underlying thing that I don't know about. So it it just causes question when you're so secretive, you're, you're and you're that secretive with your wealth. So they, they say that the number one cause of divorce is financial for a reason because people remember you have seven different personality types that could be meshing together yeah when when you get together so those different money personality types might not jive as well absolutely you're right the number one the r- number one reason for divorce is financial i think the second one is because i like the haves and my wife likes toronto maple leafs i think that's the second reason <laughs> i still don't understand uh, your choice in hockey teams, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's leave hockey aside now. Let's go to the last one, the bunker. So the bunker, if I understand what you said earlier, the bunker is the frugal person. Am I right? Yeah, the bunker is someone who very careful with money. Uh, you know, they bring the they bring their bags to the grocery store because they don't want to pay the five or 10 cents for for the other disposable bags at the grocery store. It's possible that their frugality is a badge of honor to the bunker. At least that's how they may they may view themselves. Really and truly their greatest fear is that they could lose everything. So, okay, I'm a bunker and you're working with me and you're trying to help me build wealth and build financial security. And you notice that I am this type of personality and I don't like to spend or I, I I feel like, you know, not spending is my badge of honor, but you need to implement a strategy, a tactic, a few solutions, and you're having a hard time to convince me. What are the different tools that you can use to help me understand that as a bunker? I think the bunker is looking for security. A lot of financial tools that we have are tools that can be built around guarantees. And I feel like if the bunker is realizing that a lot of 
areas that they're parking their money uh, will give them that peace of mind of knowing that they're not going to lose their money and they're not they're not going to have to worry about unnecessary risk they won't feel they they won't feel like they are in need of um, worrying about it all the time because they do have a very strong steadfast commitment to living within or below their means well that's a that's a good thing but I guess to the extreme is not. Any so, extreme is not, right? And we're talking these mindsets, just for clarity, we're talking extremities correct. for a lot of these mindsets. And there's going to be potential blends of all of them. But uh, the quiz will really enlighten you as to which one you lean the most towards. That's right. So I, I was about to ask, like these are obviously stereotypes uh, to describe an extreme behavior, but everyone has a bit of combination of some of them, right? Some of us may be masqueraders and uh, undercover agent at the same time. We have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, and so what is our natural tendency? How do we lean? Uh, I may lean more masquerader, but at times I'm an undercover agent and at times I'm a Pollyanna. So that's that's how I understand these money mindsets. So you mentioned a few times, uh, there's a quiz, there's a survey, something that you can do. Um, can you direct us to where we can find out? Like if I wanted to do a personality inventory and find out that I'm an antisocial person, can I do some sort of survey to find out that I'm actually a bunker and an undercover agent? Where do I go for that? As of right now, my my only access to the to the quiz is what I have in PDF form, but I we can certainly distribute that to to any of your listeners. I believe there might be a link somewhere to to a website, Vu, but I'll have to find that for you. We've talked about these mindsets. If I lean more towards one particular type of behavior, obviously there are pros and cons to that type of behavior. And as a CFP, how do you help your clients manage those? How do you help your clients uh, blend a little bit better or be a more balanced behavior? How do you do that? Yeah, so not everybody that we work with will do the money mindsets quiz. It, it's it's not necessarily suitable for everyone on a first sit. But as relationships grow with our clients, it, it, it typically is something at some point we will do together. And it's usually, we'll bring it up casually in conversation and it sparks curiosity. And a lot of it is for me to, as well as it is for, for any, any individual, because now I know a little bit more as to what way you tend to be, what, what way you tend to lean towards. So I know how to build around that. I, I, I forgot to say one point about uh, the bunker that might identify a few in the room is they tend to not like risk at all with their investments and they're not really willing to even research beyond that. There are a lot of GIC savers. They might like to save in uh, all their money inside whole life. Um, they almost always have locked in mortgages. So if you're somebody with a locked in mortgage and you say, I will never look at variable rate mortgages, um, there's a good chance chance that you have a lot of this this bunker mentality, they actually tend to be of the mindset of the devil I know, right? If you ever heard that expression, uh, the the devil I know yeah. is better is than better the than, devil I don't know. That's right. 
but they also look at it as the devil I know is better than any mathematical proof that you can even show me with valid strategies. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so they're not looking to, to be changed. So I would say that a lot of our tools with, with financial planning now, and even the certified financial planning course, it, it is extremely focused on assisting clients with behavioral ways that they're looking at their finances. And I would say it's very, very much relatable to the medical professional, the, the medical profession, when you think bedside manner, you know, if somebody is diagnosed with terminal cancer, and you know that they're not going to live to see another day uh, within probably 72 hours, you wouldn't just walk into the room and deliver the news like that, right? You, you would want to have a little bit of a bedside manner, potentially, or you would want to deliver it in a way potentially that that is not going to be so harsh or so to the point. I find that with finance now, we are more so getting to know the actual person. And then through getting to know them, we're, we're coming up with ideas and strategies, but we're never really telling you what to do. What we're doing is we're giving you options. Right. And we're allowing you time to sort of sit on those options, mull those options over take as much time as you need to figure out those options. Because remember of the seven mindsets, they all make decisions differently. Yeah. So we are more so consultants than salespeople. At yeah. least I would say somebody who is really trying to master the art of being a certified financial planner, you're, you're somebody that is going to just weigh, lay out options and pros and cons and allow the consumer to make their own decision. Right. With your guidance. That's right. Well, so you're, you're essentially a, uh, a doctor for money. Yeah. The, the financial, uh, the, the physician financial planner. <laughs> That's right. So thank you very much for going through these, uh, seven money mindsets with us and also sort of describing some of the drawbacks of these mindsets and what are the different tools that can help these individuals. And, like we said before, nobody is one extreme. We're all a blend of some of these mindsets together. And I think the important is that, you know, we should recognize how we lean uh, when we are in stress. Because when we're not in stress, we're probably a mix of, of some of these. But we're, when in a time of stress, we tend to fall back to a certain extreme and lean harder on one than the other. And, and understanding that we do that because we're human and we behave like humans and understanding that we do that is important for our own uh, financial safety and financial wealth in the future. Well, well and, and I would say get to know yourself because once you are aware, you can start to make decisions to to sort of mask or, or not mask, sorry, sort of navigate your behavioral tendencies. I mean, you mentioned something that is very important uh, and is know thyself. Um, it's very important that people know exactly who they are as a person, as a money manager, as a money mindset, because all our investing decisions, money decisions, financial decisions is really colored by how we see the world uh, and how we view the world. And so I don't I don't begin any financial or any personal finance talk without saying know thyself. 
Absolutely. Well, Vu, it's been great. Thanks for having me again. Any any listeners that want uh, want to take the quiz or have the booklet, you know, you know how to reach me. So we'll we'll talk soon. Thanks, Vu. Thank you, Nick. Well, I hope you enjoyed this podcast discussing the seven money mindsets, and hopefully you started thinking and reflecting on which of these money mindsets you have. Uh, maybe you have a blend of them. But during period of stress or during periods of important decisions, which of these money mindsets do you lean more towards? And uh, if that's the case and you have figured it out, well, there are obviously pros and there are obviously also cons. And so when you are about to make important money decisions or investment decisions, know how you think and know what are the drawbacks of those type of mindset. So thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please uh, share it with your friends, your colleagues, and your pet turtle, even if a pet rabbit, if you have. Uh, if you have any comments or feedback, please email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. Don't forget, if you would like to have the PDF of this inventory, please email me and I can share it with you with Nick's permission. So thank you very much, and hopefully I will hear from you guys next time. How is My Financial Health Doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.